0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Unlatched podcast, a podcast sharing spoken word and original music from one home to another. I'm Amy Hodkin. And I'm Jessica
1: Kashtan-Brown. I am jessica Cashdown brown
0: i do not know if you can tell, but for the first time, Jess and I are actually talking properly online rather than recording our bits separately. So it's very nice to actually see you, Jess. Yeah, likewise. So this is our Class of 2020 special
1: episode. Trying to help graduates celebrate in place of whatever graduation ceremonies they should have had this summer but couldn't have. So it's something towards helping them celebrate their work. Because we
0: both know that third year can be such, or final year rather, if you've done years abroad or you're an MA student, um, we both know that your final year is so tough anyway with the amount of pressure on it without having to deal with a global pandemic on top of that.
1: Yeah, for sure. And
0: yeah, having to do that remotely from home and, you know, not having the access to like the library and that sort of thing or the spaces to study in, as well as, you know, the actual celebration side of it.
1: To congratulate people as well, like, congratulations on making it through this year of all years as your final year of university and also to all our contributors who've done so well in their degrees at a time when doing well in your degree was probably secondary to just making it through
0: (laughs) yeah definitely so this is our class of 2020 episode celebrating the work of people who graduated this year whether that was from an undergraduate or an ma course so our contributors who were really excited to you know share their work and and talk about it we've got work from clementine brown vanuit arif mcdonald Michael Morgan, Molly Winters, and Sarah Murray. Excited to hear from all of them. We've got a mix of poetry and also fiction that's both historical fiction and kind of YA children's fiction, and also a non-fiction essay written about what it's like to graduate um, in 2020. We're obviously going to talk about that later, but I think when we both heard that piece by Sarah and, and read her blog post that it's from it really resonated with both of us. So I hope people listen through to the end and, and hear that.
1: This episode, we don't have a musician spotlight because we're focusing on giving the spotlight to writers who have graduated this year in 2020. Submissions for episode eight are also currently open. So do send us your work. You can find us uh, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter under Unlatched Podcast. And you can find our website at unlatchpodcast.com. Obviously, like
0: the format of this is going to be a little bit different to um, our previous episodes where we've recorded things separately and then pieced it all together. But as we are able to now communicate (laughs) directly, um, it's very nice. So we are going to be having more of a, a discussion about each piece. And also, I just wanted to ask you, Jess, Like, what are you up to at the moment? How's your writing going?
1: So I've been working recently on a poetry project that's an experimental poetry project that's called the predictive text poetry project it's based around the idea that predictive text kind of provides an insight into the conversations that everyone's having at the moment especially in the pandemic situation everyone's using social media more so each week i give out a prompt and i get loads of people through all social media channels to submit responses where they complete a phrase using the prompt as they're starting with their predictive text and from all of the responses i make a poem and i post that on my website at the end of each week
0: and it's it's quite fun to do because i've like submitted my responses and then it's quite exciting to go and read the poem when you put it up and go like, oh did mine get in is it there <laughs> and then to see what you've actually done with it and yeah like what other people have have come up with so yeah i think it's a really cool idea. kind of like yeah I guess it's a found poem sort of idea isn't it?
1: Yeah absolutely I'm loving how collective and collaborative it feels like it is a reflection of everyone obviously you know I'm stuck within my own social media echo chambers a lot of people share the same views as me I'd like to branch out further but I'm not sure the algorithms are allowing me to push (laughs) beyond the scope of that. (laughs) And the
0: the kind of prompts you're giving as well are really interesting did you have one about trees? Yeah I can't I think remember. That
1: was possibly my first one. Was that the first yeah. one? I really liked yeah.
0: that one. Yeah I mean we've I think we've both been on autumnal walks today enjoying lots of trees so yeah I might go back and read that poem and see
2: yeah.
1: um, <laughs> how it resonates today. A lot of them have been kind of environmentally themed trying to push in a a general way towards what people are thinking about and worried about and what's on people's minds as problems for now and what we're doing about them and what we can do about them and kind of trying to seek within each a thread of positivity to like bring through a positive message. Because each of the poems has a different
0: prompt, would you consider going back to your earlier ones and seeing if the responses you get are different and whether it creates a different poem?
1: I suppose it'll be quite interesting. I, I think as well, through the project, I've managed to get a lot of different people started c- contributing, whereas at the beginning it was mostly like family members and close friends who I got to start the ball rolling. <laughs> so I'm sure I'd get a lot of different responses. But at the same time, a lot of your predictive text is very like personalized. And I found already that even with very different prompts, a lot of the people who've submitted to previous ones who are submitting now submit very similar sounding things because their keyboards get stuck in a little loop of predictive so I'm trying to leave longer gaps between them to let people's keyboards reset. Oh that's interesting. It's an interesting insight into how predictive text works as well because didn't really have a clue about that before other than that they kind of learn the language as you use it but I think as well mm. it seems to be different on every social media channel your predictive text options will present you with something different according to what you usually talk about on that app oh i didn't realize that neither did i until someone told me that they submitted one from their phone notes and then one from a different website and they had two completely different sets of predictive text options so I figure that must be the case that they kind of adapt. For the next one, do you want me to send you one from Instagram,
0: Twitter, Facebook? That would be (laughs) on my notes. Would you be interested in that? Yeah, definitely. I might do that. Okay. So, um, where can people find that if they're wanting to
1: submit? So that's on all of my social media channels and very easy to find. I have a very uh, obscure surname, so Jessica Cashman Brown. You should be able to find that anywhere. But I do also have. A website which is jcashdanbrown.wordpress.com and you can do the forward slash ptpp which will take you directly to the predictive text poetry project
0: and we can pop a link to that somewhere can't we for people to find yeah. so yeah so should we crack on with some fiction to begin with
3: yeah enough about we... me
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to start with our first 2020 graduate we're going to be hearing from clementine brown performing her piece of um, historical fiction and we're going to let her introduce herself so without further ado here's clementine brown
4: my name is clementine brown and i just graduated with a first in creative writing with film industries from portsmouth university where i had a fantastic three years and this story was written for my creative writing with publishing module in my final year I decided to focus on my love of history, particularly the 1960s and the mystery that surrounds such prominent figures as JFK and Martin Luther King and the very colourful personal lives that they had whilst they were alive and exploring the moment of of national and personal grief from the perspective of one of the more intimate companions of JFK and how it would have felt to have experienced that loss but being unable to actually display the more real aspects of grief that they would have been going through. Um, I absolutely loved researching it and collecting the details that I could find and trying to base it on a few real-life people that have been interviewed in the past and I hope you really enjoy it. My cigarette has burnt ash in its tray. I blink my dazed eyes and look up at the clock. Shit, 9.15. I'm late but thankfully he is too. I spring up and slip into my shoes, throwing the mink fur he'd gifted me around my shoulders against the bitter New York night. I'll wait for his driver in the lobby, they'll be able to find me there. I glance around my musty apartment, make sure I've switched off all the lights, and rush for the elevator. There's no doorman man tonight, strange. I sniffed my wrist to check it's still clinging, the last of a bottle of expensive Parisian perfume I'd saved for, his favourite. I wonder where we'll go, another friend's party? Out of the city? He'll be tired from his campaign trip, but that's when he says he needs his medicine, usually entailing straddling him in the back of a car, or guest room at another boozy fundraiser. It's wrong, and it cheapens me, but no one had ever warned me. No one had ever said in finishing school that your most powerful, desirable asset would be secret to you, until a man finally discovered it. The minutes slip slowly by. I stamp out yet another cigarette, and look at the gold clock in the lobby. Quarter to ten. I feel prickles of embarrassment crawl from my ankles to the back of my neck. He isn't late. He just isn't coming. The moment I had known was coming and had predicted for months. I feel my eyes begin to brim with hot tears and kick the smoking stub on the floor with the toe of my stiletto. To hell with it. No use putting all of this to waste. I check my face in the compact and head into the night. The streets feel quiet. I pull my fur around me. And squint into the freezing air. The yellow cabs still patrol the roads, the sirens still blare distantly, but something feels amiss. The groups of the young and ambitious, huddled and laughing on their way to restaurants and bars, are absent this evening. Only the foot soldiers finishing their work late, the grey suits of businessmen and tourists bustling to the subway, are nowhere to be seen. There's no music, no laughter as I would expect, rounding the corner to East 7th Street, One of my favourite bars only a few blocks away. Under the multicoloured lights shining out of the tavern windows, I see a group of strangers huddled ahead of me. They stare intently into a store window. I walk briskly against the chill, eager to get to McSorley's and order a stiff drink. As I near them, I notice they're watching something. A cluster of small television sets playing the evening news. They're never usually on this late. Two women in the group in their woolen hats, tissues crumpled in their raw pink fingers, seem to be weeping. The men around them are silent, one's head shaking slowly, bowed low. I can't get a good view of the televisions and edge myself smoothly, if a little rudely, to the centre of the crowd where I can see. Across the set headline ran, over the bespectacled and stricken face of Walter Cronkite presenting the news. President John F. Kennedy slain in Dallas, Johnson sworn in on the plane. I look at the woman next to me now, her gaze unmoving, grief etched on the lines of her forehead. I'm just another onlooker, like her, another no one finding out. I back out of the crowd, stepping on the shoe of the man behind me. I turn and nearly trip into the coming traffic, a cab horn blaring at me as it passes, nearly catching my coat. I clasp a hand to my mouth, staring ahead at the small flecks of snow beginning to fall on the avenue. I walk, and realise my legs feel strange, heavy, and I carefully put one foot in front of the other. Just walk. I count each step, each tight, stricken breath, each passer-by as they jostle me to get to the nearest cab out of the snowstorm. I make it to the dark oak doors, McSawley's brushed in chipped white paint, and push my way into the warmth.
0: So that was Clementine Brown with If Not Us. Thank you so much for sending that to us, Clementine. I personally don't know that much about JFK and the assassination. So it was really interesting to listen to that and try and figure out which bits were made up and what was real. And yeah, I think I'm definitely going to have to go away and, and look at that a bit more and research it because the imagery of it is so cinematic. I could really imagine it as a, a short film or a short scene of a a longer piece.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think a lot of that as well comes from the kind of attention to detail of the times, like the mink fur, the perfume. It paints this really vivid image. But I absolutely love the concept of this kind of character who's so close to the events but so far away and this inexpressible grief that's like, coping with personal grief but via a national announcement like you find out like everyone else does Yeah. but it's so much more meaningful to you but you don't get to find out in a personal way when you're involved with a figure who's so prominent within society.
0: And I think that really comes across with the image of when she stood in the middle of the crowd watching it on the many TV screens and surrounded by all those people and it's almost like it's a collective grief, but her grief is going to be so different. I think that's just, yeah, a beautiful bit of writing. And the the complexity of the emotions that Clementine expresses here, I think is really quite masterful in how she pulls that off, because it's, it's a very quite subtle,
1: understated piece. It's got a really deaf sense of dramatic pacing with the kind of, detailing of absences and noting the things that are missing or unusual you get the unease which drives the sense of drama but it is this really subtle kind of it could be any other evening and I suppose that does such a good job of addressing this personal grief Of when you find out something like that it's always just a normal day beforehand it's yeah fantastic
0: yeah definitely and just like one really small detail but I loved how the cigarettes are used as a measure of time yeah just I thought that was so clever and she could have almost done without the actual time the time stamps in the narrative but I think they're important for the assassination and the news announcement but yeah in terms of keeping pace I think the cigarettes really manage that yeah so I, I really enjoyed that and I think I'm gonna have to read up about the JFK assassination. Likewise, yeah. So thank you, Clementine, for sending us that and congratulations on graduating. Thank you.
1: Uh, So our next piece is a piece of poetry from Vanwy Arif MacDonald called Farmer's Market Saturday Poem. And I will let Vanwy introduce it.
5: Farmer's Market Saturday by Vanwy Arif MacDonald. I graduated with an MA in writing in 2020. I really loved studying poetry with David Morley, as it gave me the confidence to find my own voice. I wrote this poem after seeing a statue of a First World War soldier outside the town hall in a small Shropshire village. At the heart of the village was a samosa and chai shop. I wanted to bring two images together into one poem to acknowledge that the young people who fell in France and Belgium came from every nation in the world. Farmers Market Saturday A soldier, tin-hatted, rifle slung on shoulder stood silently outside the town hall opposite the singular bookshop silhouetted in the morning sun He didn't move or breathe Instead, he allowed the cold winter light to soak into his cast contour. His face, in profile, was neither old nor young, bore no visible features. Smooth matte metal, heated, burned, poured and pulled, hammered and pressed, shaped the soldier. Spoke no secrets, gave no clue as to where he'd come from. Was he a farm lad who would never again see the hoarfrost on Colbatch Hill? Or a boy from the Caribbean, far from the hot humidity, missing mahogany and rosewood? Was he Indian, Gurkha, a Muslim, a Sikh, dreaming of reunion with his mother? Tears of misgiving and pride melding as he saluted her. All fell in the same mud. Glad the artwork commemorated all the fallen, I walked further down the hill, past the bakery fronted by cobbled stones, beyond the display of shrewsbury biscuits and cakes for all souls, aromatic puddings and fidget pies, mint and gingerbread, down towards the chai shop. As I pulled the wavy glass door, scents of green cardamom pods and ochre cinnamon sticks kissed the crisp january air
0: so that was vanwee Arif mcdonald with farmer's market saturday a really lovely poem and i guess like clementine focusing on the past and you know drawing inspiration from the historical
1: i really love as well in this piece how it focuses on the past but it also pulls you very specifically into the present and you have this really sensory approach with the kind of food and smells, fidget pies, gingerbread, chai, cardamom pods, ochre cinnamon sticks. They're really, really vivid sensory depictions of place that pull you right into the moment. And they're quite multicultural in a way, which I think brings it back to that point about the monument of the soldier being the everyman from everywhere.
0: And I think what's... What's really interesting there is that, especially from a UK perspective, that we often erase the role of kind of Commonwealth nations in World War One and World War Two as well, and how it's really important to acknowledge the role of, you know, non-white British people in the war. And, you know, obviously for other countries as well to acknowledge that and the role played by, by all people is really important and there's definitely a a shift at the moment isn't there you know with that and, and readdressing history so i think this poem is celebrating the diversity of british culture and what different people have brought to this
1: it does a beautiful job of kind of recognizing this rectification of the narrative of one side versus the other like one nationality versus another isn't the case and no wars were fought like that people were from all over the place but people were also pulled into our wars through our colonization of other countries and were fighting our wars for us and alongside us and that's yeah that is a narrative that gets erased so much within education i think as well this sort of sensory sensory thing of pulling you right into the moment through these foods and these smells, but also kind of addressing a sense of place that is built up of smells and tastes and things that are quite multicultural and from a lot of places. Really reminds me of an amazing book I read recently called *This Tilting World*, originally by Colette Fulu and translated from the French. And in in that novel, she it's very much a blend between poetry and fiction, but she uses taste and smells very specifically to evoke the idea of Tunisia and the place where she lives in Tunisia. But it's also a kind of way of reflecting a complex identity because she feels like, as Tunisia is an ex-French colony, that she has a lot of French identity and she doesn't really know whether she belongs within Tunisia. And this kind of exploration is done in a very interesting, sensory way. That sounds fascinating. What was that book? Uh, This Tilting World by Colette Mm. Falou. Okay. I
0: will have to find that. <laughs> My reading list is going to get quite long by the end of this episode, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have got to read up on the entirety of JFK and <laughs> and that book. But yeah, that sounds amazing. I think one other thing I'd like to say just before we move on is Van, we mentioned David Morley, he's a tutor at the Warwick Writing Program. And yeah, just Jess and I also had him as a tutor and just absolutely amazing, Um, so inspiring with poetry. I just remember our first poetry sessions with David um, were completely eye-opening and he's the person who made me actually think that poetry was something that was worth doing and yeah it was so inspiring.
1: I never really thought of myself as a poet before, I always thought of myself as a fiction writer but David Molly's poetry workshops just completely opened my eyes about what poetry could be and what it could do and what it could say and what constitutes poetry you know how it breaks a lot of boundaries and borders between uh, different forms that was really exciting I think as well yeah a a little nod to all of the tutors and lecturers who've helped all of the 2020 graduates get through this incredibly tough year because it's pretty tough on them too and they tend to do a great job
0: yeah absolutely I definitely second that I guess speaking of poetry, um, we've got another poem coming up for you next from another Warwick Writing Programme student. So this is Michael Morgan performing his poem Unholy Sonnet to My Mum.
2: Hi, uh, this is Michael Morgan. You might remember me from the second episode of Unlatched where I read my poem My City. Um, In that introduction then, I, I sort of described how I was going through with an English Literature and Creative Writing degree at Warwick. I've since got first class in that degree and I'm going on to do an MA uh, at Warwick with the Literature Department in Critical and Cultural Theory. So it's very exciting times. Before I continue with the poem I'll read today, I just wanted to say thanks to Unlatched for doing um, a graduation episode. I, I won't be terribly unique in expressing my disappointment that graduations didn't go ahead in, in what's probably one of the most difficult years to have ever graduated, um, and we need that sort of celebration. Hopefully we, we at some point get some chance to properly celebrate, and this is a good way of of marking it as well. Um. Anyway, the poem I'm going to read today is, is called Unholy Sonnets to my Mum. It's from the same collection as my city. The collection is called 3009 Coventry, and in that collection I go between describing Coventry is a place and, and also sort of describing my grief uh, for my mother who passed five years about five years ago from lung cancer. The Unholy Sonnet to My Mum is loosely based on John Donne's Holy Sonnet 10 where he's talking about death and, and, and God and uh, there's a few nods to that poem in there but anyway this poem is based on going to my mother's grave with my twin brother. Um, we don't go up very often but uh, when we do it it feels like quite, quite a... a suppose, daunting occasion. Unholy sonnet to my mum. We arrive off the 20C bus, all in a fuzz, down from the centre of it all, after our pub lunch. We go down the road, picking dandelions as we go, to take them to you like we used to after school. We have disarrowned here to drink too, because we were cheated of the chance to drink with you. Sweet scythes in the night roared as waves down that industrial hill, spurning as they go. Swinging you in its arms, smiling star sky. Gets me thinking about purple futures dashed. The throwing of hats and braces of colours, different and new as I break to my knees before the stone. Scattered memories and shattered glass on the ground and exploded dispersed where soft poppies are found. Anyway, thank you. I
1: really love in this poem the way that it sort of hinges around what grief does to memory, in terms of the memories you have, and the memories you never get to make, and the memories of experiencing your grief as you're experiencing it now, and how it changes over time. I really love that line about bringing Disarano because they never got the chance to drink together. Mm-hmm. That's kind of sense of wanting to include someone and marking their absence. Almost in the memories you didn't get to make, as well as the memories you do have of them. I think that came across really beautifully.
0: Yeah, I also wrote down that line in my notes, and I also wrote down picking dandy lines as we go. There's something about the beauty of the yellow and taking that. Yeah, I think it's it's such a beautiful poem the use of the sonnet form I think is lovely as well sonnets are such great vehicles for so many different emotions whether that is grief or exploring mortality and kind of celebrating life as well I think there's there's a lot that can be done there with memorializing and that sort of thing
1: yeah absolutely there's a lot of tradition of the sonnet form to build up of there that I think works really well in conjunction with the lines of this poem I think it does a really beautiful job of being very subtle as well in what it's exploring it's kind of the ending with all the sort of textures and sound and the shattering kind of explosion as an expression of kind of inexpressible feelings it's really beautiful and it does it takes imagery like the dandelions and sort of sensations like the de serrano and ideas of memory and it kind of breaks them apart and threads them together in a way that is more expressive of the feeling itself than if you were to talk about it completely directly and I think you know it never is a very direct experience it's always very complicated and is wrapped up in so much else at the same time yeah it's
0: interesting because grief is something that everyone experiences but everyone experiences it differently because each Grief is unique, and I think that really comes across with those particular details, like the De Serrano, like the dandelions.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think
0: it's a beautiful memorialization and, yeah, of, of his mum. It's such a beautiful poem. But you can also tell as well how much thought has actually gone into this poem from Michael's introduction. I mentioned John Donne, but yes. all the different elements that he's incorporated into. You know, just fourteen lines. I think is is really quite impressive. So thank you, Michael, for sharing that with us. And yeah, thank you for joining in in our celebration of the class of twenty twenty, and best of luck with the MA. And hopefully, hear some more of your writing on the podcast soon. If you're wanting to submit again, Um, we're we're always up for repeat submissions. Next up, we have Molly Winters reading a piece of YA. Uh, or children's fiction, which, just before we get into it, I actually found so nice to listen to, um, just to listen to something. I don't know, that with kind of COVID and everything else, it was just quite relaxing and and nice.
1: Molly Winters studied creative writing and film industries at the University of Portsmouth. And this is her piece, Queenie Brook and the Dream Catchers.
6: Hi, my name is Molly and today I'd like to share a segment of a young adult slash children's creative writing piece that I wrote during my third year at university. The aim of this piece was to cover mental health within young adult slash children's fiction, and to reform children's ideas surrounding it, while creating empathy, relatability, and to confront the stigma surrounding mental illness. This story follows a young protagonist called Queenie in her efforts to confront her anxiety, and later discovering she can control her dreams. Jacqueline Wilson inspired me greatly as a child, and I wanted to carry on that legacy by continuing this important conversation. Without further ado, this is Queenie Brook and the Dreamcatchers. I woke up to a breeze, which was unusual as I wouldn't leave my window open at night so deep into winter. It was still dark out and my room was dimly lit from the glow-in-the-dark stars on my ceiling. My body was vibrating like it was oozing electricity, and I felt overwhelmed with the feeling of my heart racing, ready to jump out of my chest. I jolted up and turned to see my peacefully sleeping body behind me. My mouth dropped at the sight in front of me. I leapt from my flower-patterned bed and attached to me was what looked like a glowing worm. It radiated silver and flared a blinding white light. "'I can't be,' I muttered to myself. I poked my palm and my slightly translucent finger fell through. My body shook and I gave a quick bark of laughter. I leapt from my unmade bed and glided over to my postal-covered bedroom door. "'Oh my God!' I said shakily at the disbelief of me, Queenie Brooke, basically flying over to my bedroom door. My polished door handle stung me with a bitter ice-cold touch as I went to exit my room and explore. I pulled my strawberry pattern pyjama sleeve over my stiff hand and managed to swing my door open. However, I bounced back when I saw a lady, whose curly hair defied gravity, stood in front of me and in my dark doorway. Oh, you scared me, she gasped. She stuck out her flaccid tongue to catch her quick breath, and I did the same. She slid her crimson glasses down the bridge of her thin nose and lowered herself to my level. Her green eyes popped out at me as she looked me up and down, pursing her lips. Mm Mm-hmm, yes, very good, she muttered to herself. She whipped a leather notebook out of her striped pocket and scribbled something down. She then jolted her neck to look at me. Not to fear. Now, if you'd like to take my hand, she instructed. I gingerly grabbed her leathery hand, and she looked down at me with narrowed eyes. "'Come on, dear, look up now,' she demanded. I cracked my neck back, and so did she. We launched through my star-sticker-painted ceiling and into the clouds in a blur of speed. Wherever we were flying was damp and cool, and everything was twirling. The wind was screaming as a strong gust launched us to the left, and whatever had engulfed us spat us out and onto a bumpy cobblestone floor.' The petite mystery woman hoisted herself up from the floor, and I think every single one of her bones cracked along the way. I led there in a heap, smelling the damp floor, too shocked to move. "'Well, come on, lazy bones. You can't stay there all night,' she lectured. I peeled myself off the ground, and in front of me was a grand iron gate that was even taller than Mr Williams. I couldn't even see the top, as the ends of each pole disappeared into a thick mist in the sky. "'Where are we?' I questioned. "'Well, firstly, my name is Nina.' You may have read about me in your Dreamcatcher's guidebook, she gloated with a tight smirk. I patted every inch of my body hard, as I had the horrible realisation that I no longer had Flora's Dreamcatcher book. I felt my heart beating in my throat as my sweaty palms searched every corner of every one of my pockets. What's all the fuss about, dear? she asked. It felt as though the words flew out from my mouth like vomit as panic set in. The the, the diary journal thing, it's, it's gone, I lost it, I fretted. Nina grabbed my flailing arms and pulled them down hard to keep me still. Two black figures were approaching slowly behind Nina, and the second I saw them, my digestive system threatened to throw my dad's homemade pizza back into the world. The stabbing ache in my stomach was unbearable, and my breath was so fast and short I couldn't breathe. Nina clocked onto the figures looming nearer to us, and her hands began to quiver. "'Sweetheart, you need to calm down,' she demanded." No rational thoughts could enter my overcrowded brain as my anxious thoughts raced around like a Catherine wheel. You need to calm down now. They'll go away sooner if you do, she yelled. But it was too late. I hadn't panicked like this since Olivia Carter pulled my skirt down in front of the entire school in year six. When Nina noticed, a thick pull of sweat slapped across my forehead. She wrapped a thin rope around my wrists and lassoed the rest of it into the sky. Before I knew it, I was plunged into the clouds, in a blur of speed again, and spat back out onto my spongy bed. Thank you for listening.
1: I think what um, Amy was saying before we heard the piece uh, about this being lovely to listen to and kind of uplifting feeling, I think it's so easy to forget how amazing children's fiction and YA fiction is for doing that. I think as someone who's done a literature degree, and worked in an independent bookshop. I'm exposed to like a lot of different literature, but you always kind of stick to the literary fiction and kind of adult stuff once you're beyond a certain age. But actually there are still kids' books that I return to again and again because they they do just have such an amazing way of tackling, as Molly's piece does, quite difficult subject matters to do with like anxiety and mental health and whatever else but in a way that is so lovely to read and it feels really kind of nurturing I think that was what I got from it it was exciting and full of light and all these beautiful little descriptions like a character with curly hair that defies gravity and is kind of sassy no-nonsense guide and all the little intricacies of childhood stories like having a guide book and you can feel like The web of a wider story, building out of that with a kind of, this guidebook is clearly a story within the story that spreads further and teaches you about the world that's there and all these funny visceral descriptions of things. I know that
0: Molly mentioned Jacqueline Wilson, but I don't feel like when we were growing up that there were books like this that did focus on mental health specifically. Obviously in Jacqueline Wilson, some of the characters have awful things that happen to them. So you could completely understand why they're having, you know, a trauma response almost. But just for people who haven't been through that, like they suffer from mental health issues too. So I think it's really nice to hear something that normalises mental health and, in children and kind of ways of, of dealing with it. And I'd be really interested to hear the rest of this or read the rest of it rather and see where the narrative has either come from or is going and what happens to Queenie Brooke with it all and you know her dream exploration and wherever else it goes
1: yeah I think as well kind of being in early 20s or whatever there are a lot of us or friends that I know or kind of people this age who struggle with a lot of mental health issues but seeing that it's in children's fiction as well it isn't something that's limited to an age group. It's kind of everywhere, especially at the moment with everything going on. And you can really relate to those moments of like, the almost anxiety dream moments of you've forgotten something and someone's telling you to stop worrying about something and it makes it worse and it builds up. It's so completely relatable and resolved in a really beautiful way and done in a really beautiful way that makes you feel like everything's going to be okay.
0: And I think that is wrapped up in quite a playful what you were saying earlier with the the hair that defies gravity and that sort of thing that it is quite a playful piece mm. and just a lot of fun really and then yeah there are these these moments of anxiety and where you suddenly think it's all gonna go wrong but luckily all that happens at the end is at the end of this bit anyway is that she falls back on the bed and it I assume it's all fine at that point <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yes, yeah, it, it was a really lovely piece and I would love to hear the rest. What's nice as well is when people in their final year do write these longer pieces and that is the first time that you get to kind of spread your wings a bit. Mm. And I know that for us, it was really exciting reading all of the people in our year group, you know, their, their longer pieces. And at that point, it could be the longest thing you'd ever written, aside from like, The novel you wrote when you were 11. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: that never sees the light of day
0: anymore. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so I I think it's, I hope that, you know, Molly enjoyed writing this and yeah, maybe it will will go further. So we're coming to our, our final piece in this Class of 2020 special episode. And this is a piece by sarah murray who studied at warwick university on the warwick writing program this is a a longer piece than i guess we usually accept but we thought that we should include the whole thing just because it does tap into the experience of um, being in the class of 2020 and graduating and dealing with all of that we thought we'd better include the whole thing and allow you to to experience this
3: This is an essay that I wrote in the form of a blog post during the week of my graduation in July earlier this year. On graduating class of 2020. My age can be measured in social media. I'm too young to have had MySpace or Bebo, but I feel too old for TikTok. I'm just under the cutoff for millennials. I'm a 90s kid, but only from 98. In other words, I'm 22, and this year I'm graduating as part of the class of 2020. Throughout my brief adult life, from 18 to 22 years old, there's been this ever-present shadow, that of an impending, then delayed, then impending, then confused Brexit. And I think this sets the tone for what it feels like to be from class of 2020. The first night out I went on after finishing my A-levels was Brexit night, It was a big night out, so we went out in London instead of our usual suburb. At pre-drinks, we sang, drank, danced, and we felt a new sense of freedom. We were leaving school, we were finally done, now our lives could begin. We went to a club in Piccadilly that we thought was the height of cool. Rita, it was not. (laughs) The dance floor was packed. It was a special post-A-level event. We all got sweaty as hell and could barely push our way through to the bars. Eventually, we spilled out into the fresh night air and walked around hunting for drunk food. I can't remember where we got it, but somewhere along the way, we acquired a big bag of pita bread and a giant kilogram tub of hummus to share between us. When we got back to my friend's house, we sat in a ring on the floor, dunking the pita in hummus, having the kind of deep, nonsensical conversations that tequila prompts. We stayed up until the morning, waiting for the referendum results to come through. And when they did, we sobered up quick. Shock isn't the right word, although that was part of it. This was the first time I'd ever voted, only a couple of months after my 18th birthday. Suddenly things just weren't how I had always imagined and assumed they would be. I sensed for the first time that my world was not my world and whoever's it was, it was far out of my control. A season later, there was another night like that. During our first term of uni, a horde of students and I piled into our accommodations common room to watch Trump win the presidential election. Again, something felt wrong. This was the world we were only just beginning to reach, grazing at it with our fingertips. In a few years, this world would be ours, but it looked nothing like a world we wanted. Donald Trump, the caricature of capitalism gone wrong, was now the leader of the USA. Everyone became political after that. When things are bad, you can't afford not to be. Fast forward to my year abroad in Spain, I'm having a frustrated, halting conversation with an American Trump supporter I meet, getting food after a party. I ask him why he voted Trump. He cites policies he can't name. And I ask again. Then he says, I voted Trump because my parents did, and they're my parents. Why would they not vote in my interest? After a couple of minutes of spluttering, I realise I've become that Brit raving about politics in the chippy, raising my voice at a stranger. This has never been me before. I tried to emphasise. It doesn't feel good, but for once I'm too passionate to be polite. Another year skips by and I'm working as a student ambassador, giving a tour to a 17-year-old girl with bright, hopeful eyes. She loves languages, asks me about Spain. I gently tell her my year abroad was partially funded by the EU's Erasmus Plus programme, that I don't know whether she'll have the same opportunity. I'm on the job so I make no indication of my beliefs, but the girl's mother finds something in my tone and calls me an obvious remainer. She laughs and says, it's all right, I am too. As if she didn't agree with me, nothing would be all right. Earlier this academic year, again, I learned not to trust my social media echo chamber as another election result shocks me. It's painful to accept that my bright, progressive social circles are small, tiny in a world increasingly filled with misinformation, institutionally encouraged hatred, and systemic discrimination. Then comes spring and March. My boyfriend, an Austrian friend and I go on a mini-break to Wales, to climb Mount Snowdon. It's cold and windy and we forget ourselves. Nature scrapes Helena's knee and knocks us into deep sleeps in the evening. We eat roast lamb and drink Welsh beers. But on the train ride home from the trip, we let ourselves look at the news and find that a somewhat worrying virus has now become a real threat. Helena, our Austrian friend, leaves the next day, flies back to Vienna to be with her family for the lockdown. I haven't seen her since. Quarantine falls. I visit my parents for a weekend that turns into 75 days. I finish my finals without a library. Acne blooms on my cheeks from stress. We disinfect all our milk cartons and vegetables. We knew we wouldn't have a graduation of course, but now with the coursework handed in, the exams completed, the months passed in isolation, the rules are slackening. People are allowed, encouraged even, to go back outside to restaurants, bars, and pubs. The UK is falling back into its old swing for the most part, but larger events have been left behind. Even with what we are allowed to do, it feels too early. In the charm of July's sunshine, I feel the creeping menace of a second wave. Graduations are just ceremonies, frivolous parties really, and low priority within a dangerous situation. But it feels like the class of 2020 would have deserved their celebrations. The economy is in its worst shape since 2008, Graduate jobs have been revoked and delayed for those who have them, and those who don't, like me, are in a mad scramble for work. I graduated with a first-class degree. It was mailed to me in the post. I was happy and proud. But last week, I applied for an internship and I was told it was unpaid after my interview. A volunteer position, as if volunteering for a successful, for-profit, well-known brand is noble work. I'm as privileged as they come and I'm scared. It doesn't take a huge amount of empathy to understand how difficult, how impossible and terrifying the future looks for someone not as lucky as me, someone whose parents won't be able to catch them in a safety net if worst comes to worst. I'm afraid for us, class of 2020. Sometimes it feels like we have the future in our hands, but nothing else. We're all in debt from this education we've chosen. It's unlikely that many of us will ever own property or have the chance to put down deposits for houses. Our life earnings will be paid out in rental instalments to older landlords with mortgages. The jobs we thought a university degree would secure have evaporated. There's a climate crisis that no one seems to be talking about. Who knows how Brexit will turn out now, what will happen in the next US election. On top of that, there's a pandemic. It feels selfish to lay these disadvantages out in a list. We're often told there have been worse situations, which is true. We're often called snowflakes, overly sensitive, or entitled for wanting better. And I even agree. We are entitled for thinking we're the unlucky ones. But I think maybe our entitlement might be our strength. We feel entitled to important things, rights to equality and justice for others. We fight for our less privileged peers because we do expect and demand better. We're politically and socially engaged, and we see solutions where others have seen nothing worth fixing. Why shouldn't we be entitled? Why shouldn't we expect higher standards? A world handed to us in better condition. I think this generation, this class, will need to be stronger and more resilient than we know. Already it's said that we drink less and take fewer drugs than those before us. We've been left with a cutthroat job market and a culture that relies on us overworking ourselves to achieve success. Our life expectancy is long. We may live many lifetimes each. We have to take care of our bodies because intense productivity is the only way we can survive. What we do know is that we will likely live, read, be productive, for a long time. On top of these conditions, we're ambitious enough, audacious enough, to hope for change and a more equal future. So it goes without saying, we have a lot of work to do. We're a class forged through uncertainty. We haven't seen solid ground before but maybe one day we could become the solid ground for the people who will come after us. Wherever I look now, I see chaos around me, but I also see my friends doing amazing things and being good, caring people. Many of my close friends throw themselves into hard, long work days to ensure their survival before coming home to begin the activist work that's necessary for social and political progression. We didn't ask for these circumstances and we're working as hard and fast as we can to change them whilst also pursuing career goals. That's the strength of our entitlement. Class of 2020, if the future's in our hands, I think all we can do
2: is our best with it. We've learned not to take anything lightly. That was Sarah Murray's essay on graduating. I
0: know the first time I listened, I felt quite despondent in the middle when she's listing all the things that the class of 2020 have had to deal with. So I hope you made it through to the end where she is saying about how as a the year group, you're going to be more resilient than probably anyone else. And that you can be the solid ground for the people that come after you. I think that's such a wonderful message to give.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's the thing is it, it got quite dark and quite depressing in the rural experiences although you know we graduated last year so we're not class of 2020 didn't have this same stuff to deal with you know we had whatever other trials we had but nothing like a pandemic in the middle of your final year but i still felt very connected to stuff like voting for the first time and this kind of brexit and the brexit vote and what what you were doing the day the results came out and the Trump election as well they were they were all events that I really connected with in this moment on which you become more political because all of these things are happening and it's not the world that you imagined you were kind of graduating into that you were becoming part of and I think that uni is almost the next step of that it's kind of I'm graduating into the adult world of like career work and the rest of it And it's not the world that you thought that you were joining. But that doesn't have to be something that weighs heavy on you. It's something that allows you, from your perspective, to demand better of the world, to say, actually, you know what? It doesn't have to be like this. If it's not the world that I imagine joining, I can do something to make it more into the world that I imagine joining, that I want it to be. Uh, and it, going through all of these trials will, yeah, make you a much more resilient year group and much more able to be the ones who paved the way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I didn't, thinking back on it now, having heard Sarah's piece, I didn't realise quite how much, well, it's going to sound stupid, but like quite how much Brexit was the thing that overshadowed our entire time at uni and that obviously I was like very keenly aware of it but it's only looking back on it that I realized that that was the big thing so there was that and then mm. the Trump election all this and it's like Covid was just the next thing on top of all of that no wonder people have been really struggling with it and I think that's something that you know when people talk about like oh well you know entering the job market and you know, like, oh well you shouldn't complain so much because other people have had to deal with tough things before and I think but not surely not this many you think about like the climate crisis as well like there is yeah. so much to contend with
1: I think laying them all out like that it does feel like a lot but it's this kind of seeing potential amongst the chaos like you know coronavirus has probably been a lot better for a lot of us who are in more privileged positions than a lot of those who are not I mean I guess being able to be at university probably in a more privileged position than a lot of other people are going through this pandemic but coming out of the pandemic as a potential for change for the better you know people who are in a privileged position have had a pause from their normal daily lives really everyone's having to reconsider what what they do day in day out what like their normal actions are and kind of adapt and that shows us that we can adapt we can change and there is this this potential for more I mean a lot of what's behind my predictive text poetry project is this kind of demanding better from the world that Sarah talks about that it's kind of seeing yes this is what's on our minds and this is what's constantly sitting on us as the things we're worried about that we're talking about but actually within a lot of our conversations there is a path through to something positive there is a way to demand better to make change I think you know <laughs> I say, hate to say it, but a lot of my my poems from the project have become quite like environmentally vocal and quite politically vocal and talking about kind of making change and doing stuff but I mean with the next election coming up in the US and coming out with the other side hopefully of the pandemic and you know we've been through these trials but we do have the opportunity to do something and rebuild in a better way and yes the drug market is absolutely terrible at the moment but you know that also provides a potential to change the job market and create jobs in new sectors that are really important.
0: I have one other thing to say about Sarah's. The line that really stuck with me was, I go home for the weekend and it turned into 75 days. And how at the beginning we just had no idea of what was going to happen, how it was going to unfold. And I guess we still don't. Things change all the time. But I suppose I'm more hopeful. Like, well, why can't we be a vehicle for change? And why can't we be you know, doing things differently in the future because so much has changed already, that, you know, why not come out of this being more ethical and more environmental? I guess I'd like us all to come out just being more caring. And I think there's p- potential for that. Definitely.
1: I'd also like to add that I'm really inspired by what Sarah's doing at the moment and that this essay was part of a blog that she started up called Leftovers, which we will link uh, in the description for the episode I guess as a
0: a final point I'd just like to say to everyone who graduated in 2020 I really hope that at some point you do all get a graduation ceremony and the chance to properly celebrate this and all your achievements because you absolutely deserve it with everything that you've been through this year and yeah thank you to those people who did submit work to us but even if you didn't you should be really proud of what you've written this year or put out or what you work towards because it's been it's been a tough year and I think you've all done amazingly to to get through it and graduate so we'd love to see all your graduation photos when they um actually happen and whenever that is and that you can probably celebrate
1: yeah you deserve that
0: so that brings us to the end of our class of 2020 special um thanks so much to All of our contributors, Clementine Brown, Vanwee Arif McDonald, Molly Winters, Michael Morgan and Sarah Murray um, for sharing your work with us. Our next episode will be a kind of usual Unlatched Podcast episode with writing and also a Musician Spotlight episode. So do send us your submissions for that to unlatchedpodcast at gmail.com and you can find all the submission information
1: on unlatchpodcast.com we also have on our episodes page a new button where you can rate our podcast and just leave us a review on any of the podcast apps you use including iTunes or wherever
0: do, do let us know what you think um, of the podcast and I guess if you don't want to do that you could also send us an email and yeah we're always very happy to hear what, what people
1: think about it. Thank you for listening and goodbye
0: The Unlatched podcast is an ongoing project run by Amy Hodkin and Jessica Cashton-Brown. The theme music was composed by Josh Cashton.